What I've done on the board here, um, there are a lot of ways in which you can deal with what the Apostle Paul is saying here to the Colossian church. Part of our struggle is we're not exactly sure what all the heretical false teachings in terms of its content, what it, what it was, but addressing here, let's turn this into a little bit of a larger issue, a larger lesson for us. <clears throat> Although he doesn't use that term here, spirituality, he does use that in the book of First Corinthians several times. And I think that's kind of a, a term that we can use to, uh, to, to talk about the, these verses I want to start in verse 16 again and work through, Lord willing, the end of the chapter. That's pretty ambitious for this group, but we're going to see if we can do it. What is spirituality? Most of us, I mean, I'm making an assumption, but I think this is probably accurate. Most of us would want to say or want to contend or want to believe that we're spiritual men, that spirituality is important to us. Um... Paul talks about he that is spiritual, in Galatians 6.1, for example, or in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about spirituality and what how the spiritual gifts relate to that. Now, maybe going a little beyond where you're, you're at at this point in your life, but that's kind of an important word, spiritual. So spirituality, what does that look like? Both of these... Two things that Paul addresses here, and there's a little line going from spirituality, and I put a question mark. Is spirituality marked by, evidenced by, engaging in legalistic ritual and following legalistic rules? Is spirituality based on our performance, what we do only? The other alternative, or I shouldn't say alternative, the other issue he addresses here is equally significant and very powerful today. I'll just call it, is spirituality marked by, characterized by mystical experiences? That spirituality is what you experience. And so if you think of your uh, Christian spirituality as a set of experiences, (coughs) mystical experiences you have, then you're focusing on something that, again, is what is important to you, what makes you feel good. I'm going to get real cynical here. What gives you the warm fuzzies in your walk with God? How can you have a question? I haven't said anything yet. Isn't it a contrast of intrinsic versus extrinsic? Yes, yes, that would be be good. This is very extrinsic in its origins and practice. This is very intrinsic. And this particularly becomes very um, very hard to deal with because if you have an experience, you've had an experience. And I can't tell you that's not true, or I can't tell you that's not valid, which, of course, I wouldn't have a right to do. But So I'm trying to do what Paul is doing here. Whatever these false teachers were... Uh, uh, teaching and, and doing and encouraging and maybe even ordering the Colossians to do, he's dealing with these two items. And so I'll use Glenn's uh, terminology, which is good, a very in- extrinsic spirituality, very intrinsic spirituality. Or is spirituality marked by your union with Jesus Christ, 
one who's indwelt and empowered by his spirit. Now, obviously, you know where I'm going with this. This is where we're going to end up. But he has to address this, and in my, my view, this evidence of spirituality in these two categories, again, these bunch of extrinsic, is very rampant today. This is rampant in legalistic Christianity. This is rampant in, um, I, I, I don't like to use labels, but I don't know how else to talk about it. This is much more rampant in Pentecostal, charismatic, third wave spirituality in terms of Christianity. And so both of these are really, really relevant to us today. And so I'm going to try to um, work in some examples, trying not to name names, but working into examples of both of these things that we just see today. Paul speaks to the mystical in Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in this hope we are saved, and hope for the seeing is not hope. Yes. And yeah. That's his answer to mysticism. Yeah. I think, as, I mean, we have to be very, very careful if we talk about our faith and our walk with the Lord just at the level of our experiences. Because this is life. So let's, let's talk about that. Okay, now, let's dig in. First of all, in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, undoubtedly what he's dealing with here are ritualistic rules and liturgies or practices. And the way he talks about these, it seems as if he's anchoring them in, in Judaism. Like food and drink, the kosher food laws of Judaism. The festivals, new moons, and Sabbath, they are the spiritual celebrations of Judaism. What does he say about those things? These, the things that he's just talked about in, in verse 16, these are shadows of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. So that's why we're pretty sure that he's talking here about Jewish rituals uh, and, and rules, the kosher laws, the, the worship rituals, and so on. What does he say about them? They're shadows of things to come. They're shadows of things that Jesus will fulfill. That's exactly what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying. So, do, do, do you understand what he's saying there about those, those items? Don't zero in and focus on those and say, that's a mark of my spirituality. I keep the Sabbath. Therefore, I'm spiritual. Got it? Who argued that in Jesus' time? Pharisees. The Pharisees. That was the Pharisees. I faithfully, meticulously, scrupulously keep the Sabbath. Therefore, I'm spiritual. And if you don't, what's the conclusion? You're not as spiritual as I am. So let's bring this into the 21st century. I mean, I, I doubt any of these things people would talk about today, but I spent 90 minutes this morning with the Lord in devotional prayer and Bible study. How much time did you spend? Now, that I spent, now I, I'm making it up, I really didn't, but that I would say I spent 90 minutes in prayer and Bible study this morning. Wonderful. Glorious. What should you do with that fact? 
Shut up. Don't tell anybody. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You guys, you guys love to pray in public places and in the synagogue so that, what does he say? So that everybody will hear you doing that. You guys love to give your offerings and you drop them in those there were long tubes on the temple treasury and so that people will hear all those coins going in. Wow! Why are you doing that? So that people will notice you. Because if I would say that to you and I ask you, how much time did you spend? And you said, well, I had a busy morning. I only spent a half hour. What's the conclusion I want to draw? I'm much more spiritual than you are. Because I spent 90 minutes. You see what I'm saying? If you say that to people, if a pastor stands up at the pulpit and says, if you don't spend 90 minutes with the Lord in prayer and Bible study today, you really have to question the vitality of your walk with Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with stressing prayer and Bible study, but you set a time limit to it, and then you say, wow, if you're not doing that, the hint is you're not as spiritual as somebody that does. How in the world... Can a mother of 27 who has three children under six possibly do that? So what are you heaping on that gal? Guilt. False guilt. You have no right to do that. And Paul is addressing, they are floating things out there as a mark of spirituality. First of all, they don't understand the importance of those. They're a shadow of things to come. They reflect the shadow, which is Jesus, because Jesus is the one casting the shadow. You get the metaphor? You're focusing on something that isn't really that important. You should be focusing on Jesus. And so it's really, it's, it's a very significant, very subtle, but very poignant criticism of that approach to spirituality. You see, that was never to be the intent in Judaism. Keeping the Sabbath was not something that became a formal, legalistic, performance-based measure of your spirituality. That was between you and God, because on the Sabbath, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be worshiping God. You follow the rituals and so on. But it's to enhance your fellowship with Yahweh, that you love him and know him and walk with him, and his revelation is important to you. But that's not how it tragically became. And by the time of Jesus, it was a mark of false spirituality. A good thing becomes a mark of false spirituality. Bible study and prayer, a good thing, can become a mark of false spirituality if you're saying to somebody, you must spend this amount of time in it, and if you're not doing it, ooh, I don't know if you're as spiritual as I am. What? So how do you balance that? Is it leaving off the condition of being time-bound? Because we're also called to hold each other accountable, support each other. Each other. Absolutely. How do you balance that accountability with crossing that line and where it becomes legalistic? Well, I, you're 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 raising an important question, Glenn. I think to some extent it's how you would go about doing that. If you're setting it up in such a way that what you really want is people to conclude I'm more spiritual than you are, right? It's how you say. But if you you know, I mean, I'm just I'll make up a situation. You know, it's a guy you know well. You have coffee with him occasionally. You're having coffee, and you ask him, How, "How's your walk with the Lord going?" I know it's important to me. I know it's important to you. And he says, "Boy, it's really been hard. I've, I'm so busy. I've hardly had any time in these last three weeks to open my Bible or even hardly talk to God." What would you say to that guy? 
You schedule what's a priority. Is that a priority to you? Well, yeah, it is. So what's the conclusion? Schedule. So you see, see the difference between that and the way you're setting up. This is, these people are setting these things up as touchstone measures of your spirituality. In this case, then, it's the intent to build up. Exactly. Exactly. Because exactly, the intent is to the intent. The way I framed it in a hypothetical situation is to elevate me over you, so that everybody he's more spiritual. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They want everybody to conclude they're the super spiritual giants. And Jesus' harshest words in all of his public comments always were the Pharisees. His harshest comment, because he knew their heart. He knew what they were doing. And what I'm saying to you is this kind of an attitude is pervasive in some Christian circles today. It really is. And, that, that, and you have this legalistic approach to spirituality replacing an approach of grace. My pastor and I, we talk a lot about at our church, we want to build a culture of grace at Steadfast. We do not want our church to be known as or practice any kind of legalistic ritual or rules. That is foreign to our God. That is not what he's into. Our God is a God of grace. And I'm very thankful he deals with us in grace. Not on the basis of legalism. Maybe to key off Glenn's comment or question, I mean, I... Sure, many of us in the room, and maybe you too, like with our kids, you know, we encourage them. It's important to go to church. It's right. Important to be, you know, right. Not because that makes them more spiritual per se, but it's a good practice, discipline, and maybe helps you to encounter God and to right. um, engage in worship and so forth. Right. I mean, so it's kind of that. But you're encouraging yeah, the behavior it's, it's, or the discipline. Exactly. It's your, what's your goal? You just articulated your goal. Okay, how, how do you help your kids to see that? Because quite frankly, there are some mornings, the worst thing in the world is to think of them going to church. I mean, you know, the chaos of young kids getting ready for church. I mean, it's like, you know, it'd be easier. Let's just stay home. It's so much easier. Let's just stay home and avoid all this because it's week after week after week. You have this. But, you know, you build those habits into kids' lives, and then, you know, you trust that the Lord is going to work in their lives in all of these different settings. But sometimes you just have, I'm sure this has happened to you, although you have such a fantastic family, you never had to do this, but sometimes you just have to say, kids, we're going to church. There's no debate, there's no discussion, there's no pushback, we're going to church. Are you ready? We're leaving in 10 minutes. You know, I mean, you have to just, you have to do that. You have to be very firm. But it's not out of that legalistic, ritualistic, this is going to be a performance that's going to please God, he's going to love you more. That is not the message you're sending to them, or you want to send to them. But I mean, that, what can I find one, especially with young children? But you're getting them into that habit and discipline and pattern of this is the normal part of our Sunday. It's a time to meet with God to fellowship with other believers, to be instructed in the Word of God, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes you say, we're going, <laughs> period. Close your mouth, get in the car, we're going. I know you never said that to children. <laughs> you got it? Yep. Next verse. Now he shifts into, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. He's going to come back to some legalistic stuff at the end, but he shifts to, what must have been another 
focal point of these false teachers, false visions or visions that they had. So it's kind of bizarre, but let no one to us qualify you, insisting on asceticism. Some of your translations will have false humility, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, literally a mind of the flesh. Now, let me stop there for just a minute before we look at verse 19. Okay, when he says no longer disqualify you, what does he mean by that? I don't think he's talking about salvation here, that anyone disqualify you from salvation, assuming he's writing to believers. He's talking about, he's talking about the rewards. He's talking about what is, what is pleasing to the Lord after you put your faith and trust in him. Don't let anyone disqualify you from, from that which is pleasing to the Lord, which will result in rewards. I don't know if you've ever explored in your church or in Bible study or whatever the doctrine of rewards. That, that can be a, a difficult topic, but the Bible speaks of five different crowns. New Testament speaks of five different crowns. Now, I don't want to get deep into this if I can avoid it, but there are certain things that God ple- is pleased with and he rewards. This has nothing to do with salvation, but like a crown of life, for example, a crown of righteousness. These are crowns. What, what does that mean? Does that mean a literal crown? We, we have a lot of debate and discussion about that. But it has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with you, let's, let's get it down as easy as we possibly can. All of us want to hear, Jesus talks like this, all of us want to hear him say to us when we get to heaven, well done. Amen. Follow me? Mm-hmm. Just keep it at that simple level. We want to hear him say, well mm-hmm. done. It has nothing to do with salvation. Have you been a good steward of your spiritual gift? Have you been a good steward of the money I've given you? Have you been a good steward of raising your children? Have you been a good steward in being a husband to your spouse? I mean, all of these different things that are of concern to the Lord. It has nothing to do with our salvation. That's secure. That position is, 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 is clear. Your identity is clear. That's what he's talking about. Don't, don't think that what these false teachers are saying to you is going to make you more acceptable to God. Don't think that way. But that's their self that's what? That's their pitch. That's their pitch. You Absolutely. Don't know what I'm telling you, That's right. You're in the back of the That's right. What I let's, let's focus on this issue now. These mystical. What I'm telling you, this is what's going to make you more acceptable and pleasing to God. No, it's not. That's supposed. No, it's not. This doesn't have anything to do with it. So, um, if you follow that, he he has three categories. <coughs> A false humility. I read it from the ESV uh, Bible translation. They translate that uh, just asceticism, false humility. Asceticism or false humility, it it relates to a lifestyle of self-denial. I'm denying myself certain things. I deny myself food. I deny myself drink. I deny myself sleep. I deny myself a cup of coffee every morning. Why would I do that? To earn God's favor. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah, it's oh, I, 
it, it would be like, and I can't, I can't envision doing this. That would be so, it would, it would destroy my body. But if I would say, I'm going to deny myself coffee, <laughs> and by doing that, oh, I'm so much more spiritual. So, John, you drink coffee? He's, he's deep in work. Where do you drink coffee? Oh my goodness! Okay, or peanut butter cup. I I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I'm gonna uh, the rest of my life. I'm gonna deny myself coffee. And I'm gonna deny myself Reese's peanut butter cups. And so I ask you, do you drink coffee? Oh yes, I do. You know, I've made decisions. I'm gonna do that. For the Lord, I'm giving that up. I just said that. What is the assumption? What is the conclusion? I want you to draw. Oh, he's so much more spiritual than me. that he can deny himself coffee. <gasps> He's so much more spiritual than I. So, it's a false humility to, to use what I think a lot of your translation. Jim, um, you know, people who are saying that and doing that as a way of life, where do they feel they're actually receiving <clears throat> something from God because of that that's substantive or real? I mean, we could say it's self-delusional, but I mean, if God is not pleased with that, what is the sustenance that allows them to continue? Is it the travel, a path of the same faith? What sustains that? Well, you, you, there's a lot of things you're asking there, but it can be you're just surrounding yourself or you're part of a group that this is how they are defining the spiritual life. Yeah, plus the, just the, 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 the deeply ingrained traditions of whatever you're coming from. But let, let, me, let me add something here. Because this is really an important distinction. Are there spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith? Yes, yes there are. Prayer, fasting, those kinds of things. But when, for example, when Jesus talks about those things in Matthew 6, what does he say about them? Don't let anyone else know you're doing this. This is between you and me. If you choose to fast, the Pharisees would, they'd go on a fast. So what would they do? They wouldn't shave. They wouldn't put anyone on any uh, cologne. They wouldn't put on any um, uh, deodorant, they wouldn't brush, I'm using things that we would think about. They wouldn't go through the daily things of hygiene. Instead, of, they'd go out, all this, go out on the market, oh, Rabbi such and such is fasting. Oh, he's such a spiritual man. Just that's why you're doing that. You want to hear people say that. And Jesus says that is not what I want you to do. If you choose to fast, and are there examples through the Bible of godly people fasting? Daniel did it. But it's not for other people to say, oh, you're so much more spiritual, or you do it to prove you're more spiritual. Jesus said, you might as well not do it. That matters nothing to God. But usually, I'm using these two examples. Fasting is associated with focused, disciplined prayer for something very specific. For Daniel, in one case, it was about the state of his people. And they're not able to go back to Jerusalem and all that. So he's fasting and praying for three weeks before the Lord responds. So that there are spiritual disciplines are, are a given, but it's how you exercise them and your motivation for exercising them that's important to the Lord. 
And so the, the, the idea of, of those, if I can distill it down to a simple sentence, it's between you and the Lord and nobody else. Glenn, did you? You just attacked the whole Friday um, fish fry thing, right? So <laughs> how do you balance that with... Um, I did no such thing. <laughs> because, I mean, that's, that denial during Lent is ingrained in our... Well, it is very, and, and you know, a good example of that, it is deeply ingrained in Christian tradition. And, and I mean, at one level, I mean, I don't have anything, I don't have any problem with that, per se. I mean, it, I think there's an area of, there's a tremendous area in exercising the spiritual discipline. There's a tremendous degree of freedom in how you do that. What, what you choose, that, but it's always, 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 always between you and the Lord. It is not for other people to observe. It is not for other people to conclude. Wow, look what he or she does. There's so much I couldn't do that. There's so much spiritual, more spiritual than I am. And you, you're fortunate. There's an elite set of spiritual people than everybody else. That is not what the Lord is interested in. And this is what Paul is addressing here. Now it had specific content because of the false teaching but this this can be this can be so wonderfully applied to every era of christianity and its history because this is very much a part of 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 what is going on in some parts of our culture today when it comes to spiritual things spirituality is not about a relationship between you personally and individually with jesus it's about public stuff that people see me doing, and therefore conclude I'm more spiritual. And he's saying to them, don't get puffed up about all this. Exactly. Exactly. Jim, you're saying that the self-sustaining aspect of this, addressing it directly, is the cohesiveness of the group that practices that type of ritual. It can be. And well, where else would it come from? I, see, I, I find it different because we as Christians are sustained by the presence of the Holy Spirit leading us and confirming or directing or redirecting our lives. But what's the what is the what's the power or sustaining force in people who are ritualistic uh, other than their peers? Is there any other? Well, again, there's a number of ways we could answer that, but I think a great deal of it is rooted, and Fred used that word, but it is rooted in the tradition, perhaps in which you were raised, or the tradition of a group or church or whatever in which you with which you would now associate. Now, I have to be real careful there, but it, and I, this is a really important qualifier. Some of these traditions are not evil. They, they have their origin, almost all of them, in the Bible, in Scripture. But they were always very personal things between that person and the Lord. They were not done for public display, and they were not done to self-elevate you. They are a part of your personal relationship with the living God, your union with Christ. And so that's what Paul's getting at. These guys, and, and Woody focused on it again, these guys are doing it to puff themselves up. Because he says at the end of this verse, puffed up without reason by your sensuous mind. 
literally by your carnal mind, a mind of the flesh. What does that mean? You are doing this to elevate yourself. That's fleshly. That's carnal. That's another way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. And so he's saying, all of these things you are doing for the purposes of elevating yourself. You have a distorted, warped, perverted mind when it comes to these spiritual things. And you're assigning spirituality to mystical experiences. And the second one, the worship of angels, we're not, we're not exactly sure the content of that. In other words, what exactly does that mean? But it must, in some way, it was involving these false teachers, the worship of angels. That was very pervasive in the ancient world. That was a very pervasive practice in the ancient world. And so they're bringing that into, whereas the Bible is very clear, you don't worship angels, you worship the one who created the angels. Amen. Okay? And then thirdly, going into detail about visions. This was, again, this was very, very pervasive in the Greco-Roman world because it was tied to their mythological beliefs and all that stuff. But presumably in this false teaching, last night, I'll talk about it the way one of the Greek or Roman, Greco-Roman people. Last night, I had a vision of Apollo. And he's one of the gods of the Greco-Roman world. And that vision of Apollo, he was leading this army, and he pointed to me and said, join me. And so you come back the next morning and start to tell your friends, Apollo talked to me last night. And I, now again, I'm making this up. Wow! The god Apollo talked to you? Oh, my goodness. You must really be something special. And he told me to do this? Really? You're going to do it? Absolutely, I'm going to do it. All right, let's translate it into, last night, Jesus appeared to me in a vision. And he told me to do this. And he told me to do that. Two conclusions. One, wow. You must really be spiritual. If Jesus has chosen to appear to you, whoa, he told you, are you going to do it? Oh, absolutely. So what is happening is this person is taking on virtually the authority of Jesus Christ. And so all of a sudden you're building this whole mindset around mystical experiences. If somebody said they experienced something, you're not going to be able to have much of a debate about that experience. But you can say, whether you say it to them or you just do it on your own, okay, I want to evaluate what you just said with the infallible word of God. I want to see if what yours matches up with what God says. And what Paul is in effect going to end up, don't trust in the visions of people. You trust in the word of God. And so today, you can have, I, I mean, I can, well, I can remember this so distinctly. Peggy and I, this is many, we are still back in Pennsylvania, and uh, we are not able to have our own children. Our kids are adopted. But we were going through all of the tests for fertility. I mean, I don't know if you've ever did that or you know your children. Anybody, I mean, they are very long. There's lots of things you go through. And we were kind of, oh, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through all these things, and we, had, we were trying a variety of things, and uh, it was Peggy's OB-GYN doctor and all that. 
And a gal from our church said, last night, I had a vision from the Lord. He told me what to do, what you're to do. Can, we, can I meet with you? I want to tell you what the vision was. What would you have done? Peggy and I both concluded. We talked about it. We, we, we just said, Lord, I, we just, I didn't feel right about it. Peggy really didn't feel right. So we chose not to do that. We chose not to meet with her. Now listen, I, I hope you may not agree with me on that. But I am not going to trust as an infallible, inerrant word of God that is going to direct me and direct my wife on what we should do from a woman who had a vision. You follow me? I'm not equating her vision on the same level as I equate the word of God. So we just chose not to meet with her. Now you may disagree with that, and that's fine. But we just, we, we felt, I mean, partially we knew who this girl was. She had come out of a charismatic experience. And we just decided that, that that would not be helpful for us to have in our minds what she was saying. So it's kind of like the bottom line of this is equating those visions and the content of those visions with the Word of God, that they have the same authority. Do you understand what I'm saying? Only two of you are understanding. The rest of you, okay. You're loathing statues. But that's all right. So... If you're with me in trying to apply what Paul is saying, these mystical, listen, mystical experiential Christianity can be a danger if it's not anchored in the truth of God's word. Because anybody can say anything to you and say it's from God. Do you agree with that sentence? Yes. Anybody can say anything to you and claim it's from God. How are you going to discern whether it is? You equate it, measure it by, test it by the Word of God. So, I was going to say about four more things, and I decided I'm not going to say those things. Do you, so they were all going to be illustrations, and I decided I'm not going to do it. Do you, do you understand? Well, first of all, do you understand what Paul's getting at? And number two, do you understand what I'm trying to get at in applying this to the, to the 21st century? Because you go outside of Christianity. I mean, you go, you go into Hinduism and Buddhism and all of They are highly mystical, highly experiential. And the New Age movement, which is a broad-based, crazy movement, it's all over the place, is very much based on experiential visions and all kinds of extra-biblical crazy stuff that is claiming authority for you to act. Act on this. And you're saying, okay, I don't think that is taught in the Bible. I'm not going to act on that. That does not come from God. I'm not going to act on that. And so it's, and that is, there's a whole branch of Christianity that's like that. And it's often associated today with like prosperity theology and stuff. And it's just, it's, it's quite stunning what they're claiming. And I, I'm, I'm always concerned about that because people who are not well taught will just fall into that very easily. Prosperity theology 
or health and wealth gospel theology, it's sometimes called. Did the emergent church fall into that general area too? Now, that phrase emergent, emergent church has a lot, that's a big category. So I'm not sure all you mean by the emergent church, but only among across it in my own church, we had a minimum pastor that preached on the emergent church for about nine months. I mean, it, it can be. There are there is emergent church, then there's the emergent church, and one aspect of one category or element of the emergent church movement which has sort of died down a bit, it really has, but has resulted in what is now called post-evangelicalism, which is a very dangerous and very pernicious movement within, um, within North American Christianity. Very, very dangerous, in my opinion. Though I'm not sure which one you mean. But, uh, I'm not Okay, but I mean, so the answer to your question very, very, very broadly is yes. There could be some of that, but that is a huge topic, Rob. I one time was asked to do a series on that at a conference, and uh, yep, yeah. Um, how about this one? The pastor would stand up and say, uh, "I've had a vision, and I want to share it with you all," and and go on about, "Well, we're going to." Uh, I believe that we should. Remodel this church. We should have a building campaign. We should do this. We should do that. And I want to speak to a certain group of people, and uh, and I'm going to want some donations. Can a pastor share that he's had a vision, and would we? How do you handle that? This is very specific. This happened to him. This was his pastor. Why am I going to answer that? Um. Oh, Woody, I don't want to get in the weeds with, but... Conceptualize um, it. Let me, I'm going to answer this. I don't want to know any more about this. I'm just going to answer it at this level. If, if a leader comes to a congregation or a group in the congregation or whatever, saying, based on a vision I had, this is what we're supposed to do, I, I would be uncomfortable with that. Instead, if the leader says, we, God has blessed us, we are, we are growing, and we're running out of room. We're running out of room in our children's ministry, we're running out of room with our youth, because we, the, the, which more and more families are coming, which is a great blessing for us. But if we're going to continue to minister to these people, we do need to make an addition to our church. Now, the elders have evaluated this. We've weighed all of the cost to this. We've looked at some projections of where we're, Lord willing, where we're going to be in five years. We either are going to have to start to say to people, we do not have room for you, go to another church, or we are working on a plan that is going to enable us to have more and more capacity to minister to people. Now, based on wisdom and discernment, we believe we can do this, and this is what it's going to cost, and this is how we're going to do it. We're inviting you to be a part of that. I'm much more comfortable with that than a leader basing it on a vision he had from the Lord, because what he's asking you to do, and listen very carefully how I say this, what he's asking you to do is, don't question my authority. Jesus told me to do this. 
I'm uncomfortable with that. But if it's what leaders are supposed to do, we here's where we are, here's what God is doing and is blessing us for us to continue to do this as we grow, these are our needs. And so, you, you to me, th- that's the difference between manipulating a group of people and using wisdom and discernment, Old Testament words, to help people see this is what we can do as good stewards with what God has entrusted us to do. If we're not going to be able to do this, then we're going to have to turn people away. We just don't have room for them. And that's okay. That may be what God wants us to do, that we've grown to the extent he wants us to grow, and we'll, you know, we'll send them to other places. I, you know, I'm putting it rather crassly, but I'm, just, I'm really uncomfortable with that. When somebody says, I had a vision from the Lord, and the Lord told me exactly what we're supposed to do, and we're going to build this building or build this addition, and I'm asking you to, to make it happen. And that's, you know, that's what some guys do. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Thank you. Discernment is very important. It really is. And it's, uh, yeah. Sometimes you just have something on your heart and you just don't, you know, you didn't hear the voice. But, you know, you just discerned that this would be the correct thing to do. Exactly. Because if you're a steward of something, whatever that is, if you're a steward of something, God's expecting you to manage that well. And the Bible makes it over and over and over. You manage it with wisdom and discretion and discernment and prudence and understanding. All of those biblical words in, in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms, the wisdom literature of the Bible, how do I manage this well to the glory of God? No, I'm done. <laughs> yes, of course you can, John. Okay, two things. I'm, I'm, I'm interested a little more about the emerging church. Emergent that, church. No, it's, it's the emergent church movement. Emergent, Go ahead with your question. Is that within domina- uh, denominations, or is it... It's pretty, broad, it's pretty broad-based. I'm sorry? It, it's pretty broad-based. It has... It's, and, and did you say there are certain people that are... Promoting that and uh, national leaders, or well, again, uh, see, <laughs> when Rob asked that, I thought, oh my goodness, he's opening a Pandora's box kind of question. The the look the emergent it's usually called the emergent church e m e r g e n t the emergent church movement has its origins in the 1990s, when it really the late 80s and 90s, and it was. Um, focusing on a a whole bunch of different focus points of what should the church be focusing on. And uh, a lot of it was within certain mainline denominational churches, but a lot of it was also in evangelical churches. Bottom line is we're not doing church right. Here's the right way to do it. And so the emergent church, we're emerging out of the dust and and, and rubble of what the church has become. We're emerging out. This is the new manifestation of the church. And this is what it should look like. And um, out of that came things like a seeker-friendly approach to church uh, and lots of other. I'm just using one little example. So um, one of the 
other elements of that was you de-emphasize doctrine and you emphasize the experience of loving community. Because it is the experience that loving community that unifies people. Doctrine divides people. That's another element of emergent church thinking. Doctrine goes by the wayside. It, it's it's de-emphasized. De-emphasized. Doctrine divides. Loving community is what unites. That's almost a quote from Bruce Brian McLaren. It's about spirituality. When polls are taken as church membership and and declining and everything, I think I've read that. People say, well, I, I don't belong to a denomination or I don't go to church, but I'm spiritual. Mm-hmm. So what are mm-hmm. they talking about? It's not this spirituality here, is it? Could be. What? Could be. Could be. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, that that's, uh, to be blunt, that's just a rationalization okay. of people use. I don't need to be in a building to be spiritual. But they believe in a higher power of some sort, not necessarily God. Or Probably not, not necessarily God. the God of the Bible or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can be on a golf course on a Sunday morning and worship God as much as you guys in a building. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, sure. I'm sure when you're hitting those 18 whole guys and you're, you know, you're oh my God, I'm sure you're really thinking of the Lord and worshiping him, right? That's really enhancing your walk with him, right? Now I'm being horribly cynical there, but that is, you know, that is really true the way some people think. Don't assign worship and spirituality to a building. I wouldn't assign worship and spirituality to a building, but it is a part of my life. Do not neglect the gathering together of the saints as some are prone to do, the book of Hebrews says. Don't do that. Because in there, you are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. In there, you are to edify one another. In there, you are to encourage one another. So if you don't go, then you're not going to be encouraged, you're not going to be edified, you're not going to be stimulated. So, you know, you become your singular. I am the church of Jim, and there's only one person in that church. Me! And that's all I need. I just need me. Well, if you believe that, you've been one of the greatest lies of Satan that's ever been leveled. It is not about you. I mean, it's those kinds of things that you just have to challenge that stupid, stupid thinking. It is not about you. It's about him. Amen. And he has told us how we are supposed to live and he's given us the resources of how to work. What we got? Okay. Can I do one more thing? Would I would I be able to do that? Okay. Go, look at the end of verse twenty into twenty one. Do not attach that to these. Do not submit to regulations. For example, so most of your translations are going to have verse twenty one in quotation marks. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish according to human precepts and teachings. So, I mean, there, there again, it's just the legalistic ritual. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that makes you spiritual. Have you ever, I mean, have you thought of your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ daily 24-7 as don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this? Now, it, it isn't that there are certain things you stay away from, and there are certain things you, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't uh, 
murder. I mean, all of those things are rude. But these are these are things. Do not handle. Do not taste it. These are things that don't eat this, and therefore you're more spiritual. Don't taste this, therefore you're more spiritual. Don't touch this, therefore you're more spiritual. You're putting human regulations as equivalent to spirituality. And so Paul's answer to that is in ver- the uh, middle of verse 19. Well, it's verse 19 and a little bit into uh, to the next section. Those, those who float either realistic rituals and rules or mystical experiences as the definition and content of spirituality are not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Christ. The head of the body. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its ligaments and joints, grows with a growth that is from God. So, oh, I dropped it? No, the great hunt. Well, it doesn't matter. I can use it. Oh, there it is. Okay. So, spirituality is marked by your organic unity with Jesus and the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? The church. The organic church. Not the building down the street necessarily, but the organic church. The church is both an organic entity and an organization. So Paul says, right in the middle of all this says, they are not holding together, they're not focusing on, they're not zeroing in on the head, on Jesus. Your organic union with Jesus, who is taking and knitting everything together, fostering the kind of spiritual growth that he's interested in. And so it's a powerful, powerful uh, statement of the centrality of the church in spirituality. Because it, and he uses the language there, its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. It is God who's doing this. And he doesn't deal with it here, but it's, of course, it's coming up. It's very much in the book of 1 Corinthians. Indwelt and empowered by Christ's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So the key to spirituality is union with Jesus and union in the body of Christ. That's the key to spirituality. And so spirituality becomes spirituality becomes a way of talking about your union with Jesus Christ, not your rules, regulations, and mystical experiences. That's not spirituality. Spirituality is the organic union with Jesus, with, with Christ, indwelt and empowered by his spirit, and your organic union with one another. You are in, you are in this together. You need one another, Paul's saying. You need one another. I'm going to go to all the other passages where he talks about this. You need one another to be edified and built up. You need one another to be encouraged. You need one another to come together to hear the word of God and apply the word of God to your life. You need one another to have the mutual encouragement and the stimulation to love and good deeds. The church of Jim doesn't do that. None of that can occur 
occur if it's just one, if it's just the church of Jim. That's it. You can't come into my church. I am my church, which is, of course, a ludicrous way to put it. I'm trying to emphasize the absurdity of this, and yet that's what somebody, or that's what so many, that's how they're looking at their spirit. I am more spiritual than you are because I meet with God every Sunday in the walk course or in a walk with the park, in the park, or when I take my dog for a walk. Well, yes, I mean, you can meet God and fellowship with God and talk with God, but if that's all it is, you're missing an enormous blessing from what the Lord, what the Lord has for you in the organic body of the church, meeting with, being with one another. And see, that's why this old sound, I'm sure you've heard this thousands of times, there's no such thing as a lone ranger in Christian spirituality. There is no lone ranger. We need each other. And that, that false humility and, and false pride that is the engineering power behind this silliness is why so often people get into a place of despair and hopelessness about their life and about their spiritual life. The church is a messy place, but it's the best messy place on earth. I hope there's some humor there, but I hope you got it. Wow. Are we saying that God does not speak to people only but through the scriptures? God God never communicates truth that in any way adds to or contradicts what he's already revealed in the word. Notice how cautious I was. The reason I ask is we had a pastor who led the church for an extended period of time, 10, 12, 15 years. Sure. Excellent job. Sure. The church out of debt, built a new building, debt free, was starting pilot churches, uh, not centered on growth, but on quality of the and there's one day he come forth and he said, I've heard from God. He's told me that I can no longer lead this church beyond where it is now, that I need to step aside and allow somebody else to take charge of this. Do you see that as blasphemous, sir? Oh, well, I'm not sure how to answer that because, man, I don't know this man. I don't know anything about the situation. but And I don't know all that he meant by that. Uh, you know what I mean? That... In other words, um, God, when you're at a, a a critical point like that in life, you know, and you're trying to decide, I, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm feeling a little more uncomfortable about where I'm at and what's going on. Lord, help me, give me guidance here. I'm not sure what to do. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm just going to use this example again. I don't know who you're talking about, but I've been here 15 years. We we've been able to accomplish a lot to your glory. But I'm feeling a little unsettled. Do, would you want me to move on, Lord, and look for another ministry? I mean, there, there are legitimate things that you can feel in your just your heart about your situation in life. And so as you pray about that, you seek counsel, uh, you seek the advice of other godly men um, in that situation or whatever, and you're reading the Word of God and you're looking at how did some of these wise individuals like Daniel and, and, and King David and 
Moses, how did they make these monumental decisions they had to make? You know, you read the, you read the Proverbs, and you see, and you, you come to a conclusion, you know, I do think it's wise for me to maybe consider moving to another ministry. I'm going to test this, but I, you know, and I mean, that, that is different to me than last night God spoke to me and told me I'm leaving next week. I'm not, I don't know if that's what he said, how he said it, but there's a, there's a big difference there between, and so I don't, you know, I don't know um, the specifics of that situation without knowing that I don't want to say anything negative. I don't want to say anything affirming about how that occurred. I don't, I just don't know the man's heart. But I, I would feel a lot better if, you know, what I was talking about in the first instance you're just feeling a little unsettled about where you are. You begin to seek the Lord. You're seeking our counsel. And you look at this as something. I'm not going to make an impulse. I do not think, generally, the Proverbs, I do not think it is wise to act impulsively. The Proverbs, the Proverbs caution us against doing things impulsively. Because that's not wise. That's not discerning. Discernment is insight into the consequences of your choices. So that involves, just out of necessity, time, counsel, prayer, and then you make a decision. That's a big difference than last night God told me to act. I'm acting. I'll see you next week. It's my last week here. I'm making that up. But I'm a little uncomfortable with that as opposed to the, particularly these major decisions. But generally speaking, just common sense doesn't it tell us to act impulsively is rarely wise. Nobody agrees with me. But I mean, rarely is that wise, impulsive acting. Teenagers act impulsively. Mature adults don't. Very young believers act impulsively. Mature believers don't. That's a general principle. It's a proverb. <laughs> so I've gotten myself into the weeds here, but uh, anyway. Nobody's pulling you out. Well, I mean, what we're, dealing, we're dealing with things here that are, this is real life stuff. And it gets to a larger issue of particularly with what uh, I was saying. How do I make wise decisions? How do I make wise decisions at these major turning points in life? And that's that's a very good question to ask. And the Bible has a lot of answers to that, has a lot of counsel, a lot of direction in that. And that's why, you know, you don't trust a 10 year old to lead a company or lead a church. You're insane if you do that. But you're going to look for somebody that has some maturity, has some wisdom. And uh, so anyway. Well, I just looked at my watch, and unless my watch is wrong, I've got to quit. I didn't get everything done here, but uh, because we really didn't deal with the rest of the stuff in verse 22 and 23. But Oh, good. Peggy, when I told her, I didn't get done when I, she looks at me and says, so what? You're not teaching, you're not on a semester schedule. You don't have to have grades in next week. It doesn't matter. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking the wisdom of my wife when it comes to me never quite finishing what I wanted to do instead of saying, Lord, this is what you wanted to do. I'll accept that. See the tension I'm feeling? So pray for me and my sin of, of unmet expectations. That's just so wrong.
Well, I'm being a little humorous there, but Lord, thank you for our time of discussion. Uh, Help us to avoid measuring our spirituality by legalistic rituals and rules. Do not handle, do not touch. Help us to avoid, too, building on our lives as authoritative mystical visions alone. All of these things have to be validated and supported by your word. There are ways to go about making major decisions in life. The Proverbs and and actually even the teachings of the New Testament, it discourage impulsive actions. The Bible seems to say over and over again, a good steward is someone who acts wisely, who thinks through the consequences, who doesn't build his life on sand. That's not wise. Builds it on a rock who allows you to build things into our lives so that we are wise, discerning people. And Lord, I I hope I didn't say anything to any one of the guys in their questions that offended them or if I misunderstood what they were saying or asking. If anything I said was not of your spirit, dismiss it from our minds so that we'll concentrate on the truth that we've looked at in your word today. These are very, very appropriate and very applicable things that Paul's been dealing with, even in the 21st century, because we are faced with these two dimensions of spirituality that really are neglecting. The key spirituality is our union with Jesus, that organic union with him. As we read in an earlier passage, we're letting our roots sink deeply into him. We're allowing him to build the superstructure of our lives. It's not built on things that are human tradition. It's built on our vitality and our vibrancy of our union with you. Lord, we love you for all you've done for us. We love you for what you're doing for us. We love you for what you promised to do for us. We hang everything on the truth of your word. So we trust you with that. So dismiss us with your blessing. Take care of us and what we do and say. May we be your salt and light. May we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.